0: Who are the people who are closest to God? And what is the greatest need of every person on earth? Now, before you answer these questions, realize that God's ways are not our ways. And that his ways are perfect. Ours are not. Furthermore, the creator of everything, including every person in this capacity, he knows what we really need as opposed to what we think that we may want. Okay, so today's event from early in the public ministry of Jesus Christ it, well, it goes a long way. Let me just say that. It goes a long way to answer these two all-important questions, and I'll start by just giving general, simplified answers. And then we will get specific details about the general answers as we closely examine these Bible passages. So first, first, and this has been called by Jim Simbola of Brooklyn Tabernacle Church God's second chosen people. It is people who are lowly, humble, and know that they are not only needy, but also know that they are unable to meet their needs by their own resources. These are the closest people to God. And I think I wrote about this in a Vestry Voices article recently. It's those who are humble or who have been humbled by life. And secondly, we are all born with dead spirits, unable to connect with the God who loves us and sent his son to earth as a human baby boy born to a virgin so that we can be reconciled to him. But until we let go of our own desires and turn to God in humble, dependent faith of a child, we are dead to God and dead to what He has made us to be. We just can't get it. But once, once our spirits are made alive, brought to life by the Holy Spirit, who then also comes to live in us, we can begin real life, okay? Life with God, life in God. And with God teaching us by the same Spirit who inspired the Bible. And then over time, as more and more we live God's way through the help of the Spirit in the world and one another encouraging each other, our souls get healed. And we find also he will give us the physical strength necessary to do his will in our lives. But God works most of the time, almost all the time in this order. First in our spirit, then in our soul, and then finally in our body. Now, I don't want to pull these too far apart. We really are three Part beings, and God is concerned with our full being, spirit, soul, and body, but not always as we think. Too often we think only of our physical needs, but God starts first with the spirit. So with that background, let us now examine our text. So let's go to what we heard from John's gospel. It starts out that Mary tells Jesus there's no more wine for the wedding feast. And he commands the servants at the wedding to fill pots with water. So here's the introduction. Uh, Mary, Jesus, and his disciples are called to a wedding feast... Mary tells Jesus there's no more wine. He says it's not yet his hour. And then she says to the servants, do whatever he says to do. Now let's look at it um, line by line. So it begins, in the third day, there was a wedding feast in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was being there. So again... I brought this out last week in chapter 1. John had been baptizing. We had got the long introduction by John. And then some Pharisees come out and some scribes and they say, John, who are you? And he says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm nothing like that. And then on the first day after that, something happened. The second day was last week. This is now the third day. So things are moving fast. Now, a wedding feast could also be translated wedding or marriage. Now, it's interesting the King James translators chose marriage. That's the least likely, but it is used in Hebrews 13 about the marriage bed. Say more. Now, in Jesus' day, you've, you may have heard this, that engagements lasted for up to a year. And marriages, they, they took a long time getting ready for the wedding. And then marriages were to grow stronger over their lifetime. So wedding feasts were always celebrated with great joy. Sometimes they would last a week. Okay, They were a big deal. Now, Cana, which means place of reeds, and I had to go to those Bible maps in the back of my Bible. So much happened on the Sea of Galilee, but I discovered Cana was 20 miles inland west of the sea. So all these fishermen, they're not on the sea. They're, they're inland somewhat. Okay, so Mary is the first guest Who is named, but she's not named by Mary, rather by her relationship with Jesus. She's always referred to in this passage as the mother of Jesus. And then it goes on to tell us both Jesus and his disciples were called to this wedding feast. Okay? We would say in our culture that they were invited, but I've already told you that in light of. The, um, the high view that the Jews of this day had of marriages, a stronger word is used. They are called, called to participate in and witness to this wedding. And then we're told when they lacked wine, the mother of Jesus says to him, wine they are not having. Okay, so... In saying this, she's strongly implying that Jesus should do something about it. Okay. And Jesus says to her, literally, what to me and to thee, woman? It is not yet, not yet the hour of me. So let's look at two of these. Woman is in the strong, vocative sense, okay? And what he is saying is perhaps his attitude at this point is approaching exasperation. Woman, woman, why are you doing this? Now, Jesus had many hours in his lifetime in the Gospels that talks about his ministry on earth. And his ultimate hour, if you were to do a word study, it was when he gave his life for all people on the cross when he died for our sins. But the hour he's talking about here is the beginning of his public ministry of teaching and of performing miracles. He said, it's really not yet time for this. Why do you want me to do a miracle now? Well, uh, I love how this um, first half ends. The mother of him says to the servants, whatever he may say to you all, you all must do. So Mary is growing in her understanding. We spent a lot of time with four things that happened to her up until Jesus was age 12. We did this on Christmas Eve. So since Simeon's prophecy that she would suffer, um, since that prophecy on the 40th day at the purification in the temple, and then her misunderstanding of his actions at age 12, and now he's 30, it's 18 years later. By continually keeping in mind and putting together in her heart all she had seen of Jesus over these 30 years, what he has done, she now has more understanding of who he is, and so she commands others, these servants at the wedding feast, do whatever he says. Mary's getting more understanding. And then we're told he, Jesus, commands them to fill water pots with water and then to draw out and bear it to the feast ruler, and they did so. So again, returning to the text as uh, John was inspired to write it, we're told there were six stone water pots being set there for the Jewish purification rite, each containing two or three measures. So here's Jesus' resources. This is the physical stuff the miracle is going to happen from. Six stone water parts. Now, I did do a Google search on a firkin, and I found out it's a British unit of measure of exactly nine royal gallons. So we're told that there were um, two or three of these in each of the water pots. I took a midpoint. I multiplied it by six. There's some 135 gallons of water when they're all filled up. That's, That's quite a bit of liquid. And then Jesus said to them, you all must fill the water pots with water and they filled them up. Now, the Greek lays word upon word upon word, and we would say, to the brim. Okay, so Jesus commanded them, they obeyed to the max what he was telling them to do. And then he says to them, you all must draw out now, and you all must bring it to the feast ruler, and they bear it. So now Jesus commands them to draw the water, and bear it to the wedding feast ruler, the one who had charge of all that was going on in the wedding. Again, they obey him. So at this point, the stage is set for this miracle. And then what happens in the rest of John's account, the feast ruler tastes it, and he tells the groom, thou kept the good wine until now. Then this is the first of the signs, the miraculous signs that Jesus did. And I'm beginning to trust these people that came up with the narrative lectionary I'm using. I believe the psalm, and we'll come to that at the end, the three verses we heard shows Jesus fulfilled that psalm uh, about the three-in-one covenant God, including Jesus by refreshing and strengthening the hearts of people. So first, the feast ruler tastes the water made wine and tells the groom, unlike everyone, thou kept the good wine until now. So let's go back to the text. But as the feast ruler had tasted the water that had been made wine, that's John's commentary, and he not having known from what it is, but the servants who had drawn, they had been knowing And then the feast ruler is calling the bridegroom. So what's happening here? He is expecting wine. And as he's tasting it, on behalf of the wedding party, so if it was junk, he wouldn't have served it to him. He would have sent them back for more. But we're told the servants knew that they had put ordinary water into those water pots. So in real time, they were the only ones knowing that Jesus had done something miraculous with the water. And it's kind of interesting that it would be servants, because as I said in the beginning, God favors those who are humble. And there's nothing much more humble and lowly than being a servant. In fact, the word could be translated slave, and some of the modern translations will use servant because slave has such offensive connotations. But what we learn from this is only the servants really knew that Jesus' first miracle had happened. And so now the the ruler of the wedding feast, he says to the groom, Every man is first the good wine putting out and when they the guests have been filled with drink the lesser they put out but thou have kept the good wine until now. So by saying every man basically we're getting an insight into human nature here. It's human nature to put out the most first, the first put out and serve people the most expensive of anything. But then when people get to the point of not caring because they're full, then assuming that aspect of human nature, okay, they can save a lot of money by putting out the cheapest stuff available. And the wine master knew that. But he's speaking now to the bridegroom and he praises him saying, This last wine that you served is of good and beautiful quality. There's a common Greek word for good. It's not used here. The word kalos is used here, which means beautifully good. It, It is both morally good, but aesthetically beautiful, what he has done. So the gospel writer, John, inspired by the Spirit, he wants readers to know that Jesus blessed this wedding. And Jesus, even though they don't know the full extent of what happened, Jesus wants the couple to know that their marriage will become stronger over time. Good stuff comes out first, but it gets better. Even at the end, it can get better. Now, many relationships among humans will fade with time. But it is God's will that marriages grow stronger over time. God desires weddings. I'm sorry, marriages. Yeah, weddings to produce good marriages. And, you know, Debbie and I could tell you all kinds of stories in our family where, sadly, that's not always the case. And then we are told by John, this was the first of the signs Jesus did in Cana. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So Jesus did this first of his signs in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory. So this was the first miraculous sign of Jesus' public ministry. And we're told it revealed his glory, even if it was only to Mary and the wedding servants. But I think another aspect of grace is shown us here, okay? At his mother's initial request, Jesus seemed inclined to do nothing. But then in a matter of moments, He does this amazing miracle. Why? Grace, grace. And notice that it was servants who knew of Jesus' first miracle. But then this text goes on to say, in the conclusion of our John passage is, and his disciples believed in him. So his disciples also became aware of what he did, and John wants his gospel to show Jesus always acts to give faith to people and to increase the faith of people. In fact, the very last line of John's next to last chapter said, Jesus did a whole lot more than is in this whole book, but I've given you enough that you might believe in him and that through believing you will have life in him. So now let's go back to the Psalm portion we hear and see how Jesus' first miracle fulfilled. The declaration here that Yahweh will support, strengthen, and refresh his people. So the three verses we heard in the middle of Psalm 104. The first verse I'm going to give you kind of a a literal Hebrew reading. The covenant God is causing growth of grass for animals and vegetation for the service of Adam to bring forth bread from the earth. So the covenant three-in-one God, eternally existing Yahweh, causes all kinds of green plants to grow for both animals and people. And if you go all the way back to Genesis 1, it's very interesting. He created Adam, mankind, male and female. And then we're told that before sin came into the world, before the flood, animals and humans, they ate what grew out of the ground. That was what sustained people. That was the original will of God in his perfect creation. Continuing on, wine to rejoice the heart of men and to make his face shine from oil and bread to the heart of men to support and refresh them. Now, bread and wine, I looked up that pair of words in scripture. They bring joy and strength to the heart of people. And the first time was when Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, he brought bread and wine to Abraham in Genesis 14. Later, the author of the letter to Hebrew Christians compared Melchizedek as a high priest to Jesus who gave bread and wine as the sacrament of communion with God. And notice again that the joy starts in the heart, in the inner being of a person, and then it becomes complete by physical strength from bread the bread which comes from the ground. Again, the heart of the matter is God wants to be more concerned and do more with our insides before he works on our outsides. So let us refresh our memories that a right relationship with God always starts with spiritual uh, life, with a spiritual life that comes from the surrender of our self-desires in childlike dependent faith in God through Jesus. And Jesus talked about that in Matthew 18 because their culture thought nothing of children. And then as we daily encounter God through his word to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to live according to God's ways, then people, we can begin to think God's thoughts, feel his feelings, and desire his desires. In other words, in other words, um, our souls get healed. So we get a living spirit, we get a healed soul. First and foremost, people, as I prayed earlier, this is the greatest miracle that Jesus can work in any human heart. First, we got a living spirit, and then we get a healed soul. And as a result of all of this, relationships can be healed, can become stronger, whether it be parents and children, siblings with each other. For many of us, employer, employee, and those who are called to marriage husband and wife. In fact, Paul wrote to the people of Asia Minor through the Church of Ephesus, which was the primary church there, when wives submit to their husbands who love them sacrificially as Jesus loves his church, wives will become more and more respectful of their husbands so the marriage becomes stronger. And again, for people who are married, God wants a wedding to produce a strong marriage. But now let's jump all the way to the last book of the Bible towards the end. For all who are in the church, which is the bride of Jesus Christ, there will be a final wedding feast when God is fully glorified. Jesus' glory began with this miracle, but just as um, with his first miracle, disciples who have now grown to saints by God's gracious gift through righteous acts of faith, they will be invited to this final wedding feast. And they will all know, and that can include us, what the servants of the groom in Cana knew. Then it was only the servants who knew of Jesus' first miracle. Now, everyone who can read the Gospel of John knows it. And then let me just close with the last verse, and I'm going to get a little romantic with it. But it says, Are watered abundantly the trees of Yahweh, the cedars of Lebanon, which he planted. Now, this is clearly on the surface speaking of fruit bearing trees. But I've read enough of the church fathers to know they often spiritualize scripture, all of scripture. And part of the reason, if you remember Jesus after his resurrection, Luke tells us about what he said to the two men on the road to Emmaus, where he explained all of the Torah, all of the prophets, and all of the writings ultimately point to him. Okay, so I think they would say, and I would agree with them, no tree ever bore more fruit than the cross on which Jesus died. Will we receive his death for us on the cross? And will we receive his work for us so that we can be cleansed and we can be useful instruments for him? So now let's wrap it all up and pull it together. Through the events of a wedding feast, Jesus demonstrates his miraculous powers to household servants. Then the groom learns that contrary to normal human experience, it's God's will that at the end of ordinary things in our lives, that end will be superior to the beginning. And finally, Jesus himself is the fulfillment of God's promise in Psalm 104 to support, strengthen, and refresh his people. So unlike what happened in this first miracle where only the servants knew of Jesus' miracle, we know of many miracles as recorded in scripture, in church history, and I trust also in our own lives.